the city of St. Louis, you're listening to the Don't Push Pause podcast with your hosts, Justin Johnson and Lindsay Reber. Hello and welcome to the podcast. We're back. We are back. Um, today's episode, so we haven't, I feel like this is a sort of a delayed tribute, but can there really be a delayed tribute to somebody? I don't know. But today's uh, podcast is a tribute to director Toby Hooper. And uh, I've, I've kind of want, we talked about doing this movie earlier in the podcast, yeah. but kind of what got me thinking about doing this movie was in, was it back in March? During the Academy Awards, mm-hmm. Toby Hooper didn't get his uh, shout out during the awards memoriam. Seems like a glaring omission. And I think that uh, you know some people might say, "Well, why does that matter?" But it does it matters? I mean, if you're making matters. you're making a tribute. You you're doing a tribute, and I know that they you know I'm not gonna bash the awards, but you couldn't have cut out like a a joke or two so that you could flash his picture up there just a picture making a landmark film in cinema history um but that film is what we'll be talking about today Mm -hmm. that is the 1974 um really like genre changing yeah started a lot of tropes for horror movies uh the original texas chainsaw massacre yeah uh written by kim henkel and co-written by toby hooper and directed by toby hooper Mm mm-hmm uh, and and God, edited? Did he edit it too? I think he co-edited. Yeah. Um, and just a, uh, I'll just say, maybe one of the best titles to a film. I just, it just so has this yeah. ominous, it took powerful me, title. So, uh, it took me a really long time actually to watch this movie because just by the title, I thought it was going to be so bloody, and I just felt like, eh, I'm not going to be into that. Yeah, I feel like I, yeah, this is one of those. Uh, I remember just, I would see it at the video store and just like, you, you know, I would like kind of like look at the box and yeah. look at the back and, and like, I'm not quite ready for this and stick yeah, it back on the shelf. Like it I, wasn't something I was ready to jump into. Mm-hmm. Um, but it is a movie that I've felt I've been able to really appreciate over the years. And, you know, it's something I, I think this is one of those, uh, I watch a lot of horror movies during the month of October, but this of to course. me is such a summer it's such a hot feeling summer type movie. So very, I usually very uh, much so. in the heat of the summer is when I want to watch it. So I think it's appropriate that we're doing it. So you can really feel and get into it. Yeah. Not drink water while right. you're watching it. Just feel disgusting. So uh, today we'll talk a little bit about um, Toby Hooper, his career, but mainly we'll focus on the Texas Chainsaw Massacre for our main topic of discussion. Mm-hmm. And then uh, as always, we'll have our pick of the weeks. And this week I chose... Another to- Toby Hooper film. Uh, so glad the you sequel, did this one. Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two, and yours was. Um, I I did stray from uh the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, but I did stay within the whole uh kind of cannibalism um venue with a movie from 1993 called My Boyfriend's Back. Oh, okay. <laughs> completely different. That is completely different from what we're talking about today. It is completely different, but in a good way, I think. Yeah. Liven it up, and not liven it up, but maybe uh, bring bring up um, opposites attract. Yeah, yeah. 
Um, and then, as always, we close out with our Murray moments. Mm-hmm. So, Texas Chainsaw Massacre. I don't really think this needs too much introduction. This movie is now over 40 years old. Um, and I think it still uh, stands the test of time. Say what you will about it being dated or maybe the effects being raw or whatever. But I actually think this movie, to me, it yeah. has a very uh, almost like a voyeuristic, chilling documentary. I mean, it feels realistic to me. I think that's the reason why it works and why, in some ways, it's always going to be timeless. Like, you can say that it is dated because they're wearing hot pants or, you know, whatever, by clothes and hair. But otherwise, the movie itself feels very disturbingly real and like you were could just be transported into that like it was yeah tomorrow yeah and i feel like in this podcast we're probably gonna usually we focus on like one or two topics but i think there's gonna be like a a smattering of mm-hmm. little things there's just so many little things to talk about with this movie so we yeah. might kind of drift drift around the map a little bit for uh, our discussion on chainsaw it's a fun movie to talk yeah. about um so We'll uh, get into our discussion um, before we, we'll go to a, a fun clip, but before we do that, I think this is the oldest movie we've done so far. Yeah, hitting that 70s. But uh, I, I would I would uh, never want to go to our first clip without hearing one of your summaries. Sure. Just to the movie we're doing. Um, well, it's, it's a story that we've seen so many times in contemporary horror movies. Um, except this is kind of, not kind of, but this is where the story originated through this vision of, of Hooper and Hinkle. So basically, while on a road trip, two siblings and three friends stumble across a psychopathic cannibalistic family out in the middle of nowhere in Texas. I think it's important, um, to not discount this movie based on the title and think kind of like how we did that it was too much based on the title or even the movie cover. Um, and we'll talk more about this, but, but there is more to it than just, um, what you would think of it like being bloody and violent and of no substance. There's a lot more going on in this one. Yeah. yeah we'll, we'll, we'll get into this. Um, yeah. to, to me, I this is trying this, to ruin uh, it, aren't uh, I? No, not at all. Uh, to me, this is, uh, th- I, I consider this, I mean, there's a handful of like what I would consider to be like a landmark genre horror mm-hmm. genre films and this most certainly i think fit fits into to for the 70s um this the exorcist and halloween to me yeah. like wrap up that entire decade of like these like, effective horror films like um uh west craven's last house on the left right that was that was yes that's very much a landmark yeah, movie yeah it was also incredibly violent and bloody um it's a great movie don't get me wrong it's just um texas chainsaw massacre kind of flipped it a little bit and made it to where it's um just as terrifying and just as like violating of a feel yeah but maybe more well crafted yeah and and more well developed yeah um uh but yeah we'll get in we'll get into a to quite a few things here so we're gonna go to a clip now we'll go to a clip um i'm probably gonna pick a clip with Franklin in it. Oh god, Franklin. Ugh. Somebody's gotta love him. Should we pick him up? Oh yeah, man. Pick him up. Well, I think we just picked up Dracula. Where you headed, man? Sal, you work at that place? Oh no. 
How did you get stuck way out here? I, I was at the slaughterhouse. The whole way. With a sledge. <laughs> See, that was better. They died better that way. How come? I, I thought the gun was better. Oh, no. No. With the new way people put out a job. I was the killer. Hey. <laughs> They don't send the heads away. You took these, huh? Yeah. Franklin. <laughs> so, Toby Hooper. I wanted to talk a little bit about him first before we yeah. get into the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Um, one of those filmmakers that really was on the fringe of Hollywood through most of his career. Uh, yeah, even think, after Chainsaw, yeah. Yeah, he did a couple of... Uh, like chainsaw was a hit um and he he's from texas i believe and had made one feature film before eggshells eggshells before chainsaw and then wanted to do something that would turn a profit so he went wrote with uh kim hankel the texas chainsaw massacre and got a mainly a bunch of post-grad film students Mm -hmm. to work on college kids um sort of was his calling card for hollywood and then did Eaten Alive, which is a film that sort of plays on some of the same topics and maybe not as successfully, I believe, mm-hmm. um, but kind of based on true crime movie. Yeah. And uh, but had a hit with Poltergeist, which I know that I don't really want to get into the whole controversy between Spielberg and Toby Hooper on Poltergeist. But uh, after Poltergeist. He did a three-picture deal with Canon Films, the notorious Canon Films, and did mm-hmm. uh, Life Force, Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2, and, uh, oh, before that, Invaders from Mars, the remake. Oh, yeah, that's right. And that. really, after that, he kind of was uh, on the outside of Hollywood. I mean, still putting out material here and there, uh, mainly in the horror genre. Mm-hmm. But I do... And and really his I mean, to me I I think like making films is is a very hard. I mean, if you can make one excellent film in your entire career, that's that's a feat. Um, I know there's some directors out there that have made you know m- made a handful, but you know I think this is, Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the best thing that he ever did. I I do think that there's elements of other films that he did that I, that I do appreciate. And yeah. he tried different things. So, I mean, I think certainly it's a career to be celebrated, but I think this film, you know, it was just, he came out of the gate just hot. It was just, you can't really, it, it, this was a hard one to top. I think in a lot of ways for me, I look at Texas Chainsaw Massacre as, I don't know if this is crazy or not to think, but I mean, it is... I don't want to say it's an art film, but there's there's a lot of heart and a lot of thought and care that's put into this, but it doesn't look like it's um, overly produced. It's just it it feels very instinctual. It feels just like he knew what vision he had. And I think also combined with like art direction, too, especially for for this movie in particular, um, it just felt like there was a a vision that was very clear, and he knew how to execute it. Yeah, I th- I, th- I really I think you make a good point about the, uh, the artistry of it because mm-hmm. I I do think that the horror genre has always been something 
that filmmakers have approached as a way to, you know, it's a it's a very marketable genre. It is, um, and it's yeah. some, and it's usually generally movies that can be made for relatively low budget, Gee. but they have a they have a rabid fan base, mm-hmm. um, and so unfortunately, I think a lot of times, especially in Hollywood, that fan base is taken advantage of by sort of just kind of cranking out. Especially a non now nowadays. artfully made film, but this one, I think, there was the intention of certainly making a, a genre film like a horror film to something that would turn a profit, but there was an artistry and a craft involved, and I think that's why this movie still holds up. I think that's why you can put this movie next to something that comes out in 2018 and still be terrified by it. Yeah. It's, I mean, nothing like it existed at the time, not, not really, um, but it has it has since been copied countless times, whether it's the plot, the types of things that happen in the movie, it's it's been copied. I, I, I can't even begin to count, yeah. And this is, uh, we're both fans of true crime, and this is, uh, uh, I know you were talking a little bit, we were talking a little bit about the the genesis of the character was based off of Ed Gein, oh, Ed Gein. Uh, mm-hmm. which is also was the, was it psycho, psycho, psycho. and also silence of the lambs a mm-hmm. little bit. I always, I don't, to me there is something, I mean, just about any movie now can say it's based off something, a true story. Sure. But I think at the time, sure. uh, this movie came out, especially with the opening scrawl with the, the narration, it just felt like this definitive, it feels like this definitive, like this happened, what yeah. you're about to see, what you're about to witness. I mean, it, in and, essence saying that, yeah. And I think that it, to me, it's it's not, this, this is one of the few films I think like borrowed from true crime without being exploitive and without being um, too like on the nose, I guess. Yeah. Like there's nothing in this that directly screams Ed Gein like like Leatherface is not supposed to be Ed Gein at all but we take things like some real sick and twisted things that Ed Gein did and there are elements that are used in the movie and it is done I I hate even saying that but it it's done beautifully um with you know everything from a bed frame made out of bones or a lampshade made out of skin um. <laughs> yeah, this is one of those movies I think I really didn't um, notice or appreciate the art direction and how mm-hmm. much um, just the house in which the family yeah. lives and like yeah like the lampshades made of the skin and chairs it, made out of the bones um, now when I watch it it's it's ultra terrifying that's kind of more of the yeah. things I focus on because yeah. wow there's like so much little detail in this film um, for such a small budgeted movie for me, this movie isn't really a, what I find most terrifying is not actually and we call this being desensitized or whatever, but um, it's not actually like the killings that happen in the movie. It is very much so the surroundings that the that this sick and twisted family lives in and how they interact with each other. Um, and I, I can't imagine that, um, you know, Toby Hooper had everything to do with that. Yeah, I think this really is a movie that 
because the last 20 minutes it just really is, focuses on this sort of like crazy dysfunctional insane that, family that dinner and, scene yeah the dinner scene Jesus. to me is uh it's strange this is one of those movies that i would so there's a, a few films that i would say i appreciate but they're very uh, unpleasant watches you know like i'd put happiness like, uh, happiness <laughs> or or <laughs> death wish or sure uh pieces pieces another chainsaw uh, or like uh um i'm trying to think of another one but but to me this movie it's it toes that line i Mm -hmm. mean the last 20 minutes of film is pretty unpleasant i mean it's meant to be kind of torturous for the audience there's no blood in it but i do not much no but i I love throwing that in about this movie sorry i love that there's hardly any blood in this movie you think that you see a lot but but i do think that the movie itself plays pretty you know the 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 characters are are rich enough Mm -hmm. um there's enough motivation there's enough going on that to me is like it the enjoyable part you know like the introduction Mm -hmm. of the hitchhiker um is bizarre and like franklin's characters i mean there's just there's a lot of things to me that I, i find enjoyable that make the the last 20 minutes not as 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 hard to take in yeah but i do think that it because the we have this transition from date and that's the other thing too which i think makes this movie interesting is like we have a film that a lot of it's focused during the daytime which with horror films Mm -hmm. that's generally not the case i mean we we go to night because it's scarier and yeah there's already a lot of people have a fear of the dark and this movie we're kind of a lot of the we go through day and night and morning yeah, yeah yeah and and this is a film if you haven't seen it but you've seen all the movies that it, it it's influenced it might not play the same as it does to to someone who saw this movie growing up but i do think that i i, w- I, w- I would just hope to think that like you know someone watching this fresh even right now like mm-hmm. this year for the first time uh would kind of get something out of it it's one that every time i watch it um i feel I don't really like to watch it by myself. I think I recall you saying the same thing too. Um, it just makes me feel icky and just just disturbed. And not necessarily like I feel like my house is going to be invaded like, uh, you know, uh, other films like where you were like, oh, I feel weird. I'm going to set the alarm now. Uh, it's not necessarily that. It's just like it leaves you just feeling gross and I, I i feel like that's because it is it feels like it could actually happen yeah and i i think that it does really do really well like i lived in texas for i don't know six seven mm-hmm. years and uh drove uh, when i lived there i lived in austin for six years but went all over texas on trips mm-hmm. and other stuff and i just remember like driving through west texas and having this sort of fear you know it's hot it's uh, you know <laughs> Yeah. The middle of the summer, just like it's so intense and you're just like, man, if my car breaks down, just the heat alone could probably, you know, there's not a gas station for 25 miles. The heat mm-hmm. alone itself could probably kill me. Um, and I think that they really captured the sort of the heat, the desperation of like being in a rural, rural Texas mm-hmm. area. And I mean, it, there's rural places all over the United States, but I really felt like this movie captured that sense of dread of like this oppressive heat and the the oppressive summer and like the conditions and um 
you know, being in, in a place where you might, they may not get gas and the, yeah. this guy who's desperate <laughs> may, may just take, you know, take you for all your worth. Yeah. Um, it's I think very it taps isolating. Into, it taps into the travel tra- traveler's fears. And I yeah. think that that was something that was big in the seventies. Cause n- now, you know, everything's easy. We, we have GPS, we have all this stuff, but I mean, it was a different game if you if you were going to go on a trip in the seventies. You know, I mean, you got your map, you've got yeah, some you were water, doing it by and, car. And, and, and you know, and there were there weren't uh, you you couldn't Google like what should I exactly. prepare for if I'm going across? <laughs> you know, if I'm going to drive for eleven hours, you know, it's like yeah. Here's 80 articles on your checklist for things you should take on your travels. You know, make sure you have a sleeping bag. Make sure you have water. It's just like, but in the 70s, you know, you're probably like three three hours in. You're just like, man, I'm real thirsty. I didn't pack any damn water. <laughs> Two hours to the next gas station. Yeah, exactly. So it's just no one you know, breathe. I, I feel like it tapped into a lot of those just like sort of you know just not naive mistakes that you could yeah. make you know in your early you know late teens early 20s you know it's a very isolating feeling yeah. That, yeah. that this movie communicates and yeah i think you're completely right in that it, it taps into um the fear of being stranded being uh, being alone being separated just like not not being prepared the naive 20 something horror genre oh so it's there's never this a. This is uh, where it started. Yeah. There's never a horror movie that stars a bunch of sensible uh, <laughs> late thirty year olds. <laughs> like, well, actually, I uh, don't know if it's a good idea if we go into this house. You know what? I'm gonna actually stop you right yeah. there. Um, I'm gonna go home now. Yeah. I'm not gonna you proceed are, further. You guys are driving where? You know. So. Nope. Yeah. Not doing that. It seems like a terrible idea. Well, let's go to uh, let's go to a more terrifying clip from this film. We'll go to the to the evening and. I'll find a clip from this crazy when things are about to get crazy in this film. The dinner scene? I don't know. I might just play some sounds Oof. of chainsaws. Oh man. Or screaming. Or that Polaroid noise. Yeah. Good God. Uh and then we'll come back. We'll talk a little bit more about chainsaw and then we'll uh a little bit more about Toby Hooper and then we'll give you our picks of the week. Just the uh, the last twenty minutes of this movie, uh, just this the audio like the straight screaming just stresses me out. <laughs> I know, I've had stressful. it stressful. I've had it playing in my house before, and I've been maybe doing other things in the house, and yeah. it'll just dawn on me when I hear the screaming like Jesus Christ. I always like have this moment where I feel like I need to like turn it down, like my neighbors are just <laughs> totally. Like, what, what is happening over there? Like, do what you know? is going on? It's like they call the police. It's like, oh, sorry, I. <laughs> I was watching Texas Chainsaw Massacre and I had it turned up. Um, yeah, just it's it's very intense. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of intense, is just th- this is one of those movies I feel like the making of the movie is just as interesting as the movie itself. And I won't get we're not going to get too deep into it because there's just so much to talk about. But I know yeah. they shot this during like a very limited budget. 
um, mm-hmm. during the grueling summer in Texas, which, you know, they shot mm-hmm. a lot of this during the day. Uh, you can no feel air condition, that. You know, blacked out windows and. You can feel the heat. A, a lot of most of the bones in this were real animal bones. Yeah. Uh, which is, and then they, I, I know that there was a. Uh, one of the actors got because she knew, uh, or she was working for a veterinarian at the time, and I I don't know what was, what their process was of disposal of of animals, but somehow she was able to get her hands on some bones. Yeah, when they actually had like real dead dogs and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. That they, uh, like they were said that during the filming, people were like just like would run a lot outside, of barfing. Run, yeah, run outside to throw <laughs> up. It's like, uh, sounds pretty grueling conditions, but I I, I remember. Um, an interview with Daniel Pearl, the cinematographer, and he said mm-hmm. when he first went out to Los Angeles after this film, after shooting this film, he said he got all these meetings, and he's like, "Oh, great, I got a meeting." But then he would show up, and they'd be like, "Oh, we just wanted to know uh, we this notorious <laughs> making of story of the movie. People were just interested about hearing the conditions because I guess you know where it got now. It was very grueling yeah. for you know even for a." a indie film yeah i mean that's not to say like movies generally like they are not easy and they are generally grueling long days of filming um this one though in particular just the physical the weather conditions and that they were trying to cram as much into um the time that they had as much as possible there are so many scenes where the sun is completely blown out it really adds to um just this feeling of of grossness hot sweaty you were just uncomfortable like the whole movie and i think that where the the movie's communicating that that is what all of the actors were experiencing too and including like i mean there are, are countless instances that we know of where you know, like you already said, people were walking off and vomiting, whether it was like a rotting, you know, corpse that was decaying even faster, not corpse, but I mean, yes, a carcass um, decaying even faster because of how hot it was. Yeah. Um, or like someone's, one of the actor's faces uh, was, you know, like sm- like smashed on, um, uh, he said, the pavement and he was made to lay there for the longest time in order to get the shot right because there was a cloud in the way. And he was like, my face is literally cooking <laughs> on the road right now. Um, so, I mean, the uncomfortableness that you feel in the movie completely existed w- for those actors. Yeah, I know uh, in an interview, I I know Gunnar Hansen, who played portrayed Leatherface, mm-hmm. said that uh, they were afraid to wash. He only had one outfit. Yeah. So they were afraid to yeah. uh, wash his outfit and worried that it would get messed up or anything. So they uh, he wore the yeah. same clothes sixteen hours a day for thirty days, like sweating profusely. The stench and he added. Said, to yeah, it. he said that people like didn't didn't want to eat by him during during lunch break, which I can imagine. I mean, you know, you should you, you can't take that personally, bro. Um, but, but the film does. I, I do think that even though that it was grueling it adds this sort of element the the heat and the sweat becomes like this character in the film yeah it looks real to me i mean the actors look uncomfortable yeah, yeah there were there were no spray yeah, bottles yeah, being yeah. used in this it, yeah. it is all completely people, legit people, people look like legitimately uncomfortable on yeah. film so before we go to our pick of the week uh i just want to touch on a f- 
few final things here on mm-hmm. Chainsaw Massacre and in terms of just this being again like we said like a landmark horror film number one being that this is one of the few films that you know it's it sparked the sort of you know there's a killer going around killing yeah. teens um but this one was one of the first i mean i know you mentioned last house on the left and of course there was psycho and but 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 this one the first one that had like a like an iconic horror like character like leatherface became this sort mm-hmm. of just cultural horror icon and you know later on we had Michael Myers and yeah. Freddie and Jason yeah. and Pinhead and all these other, you know, and so on and so on. But landmark in a way that it was like one of the first to introduce a character that would go go and go down in infamy is like, yeah. when you think about the movie, you're like, oh, Leatherface, of course, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, yeah, like that- in the million movies, the versions of this that followed. And... This was also the you were you were mentioning the I guess like you would call it the final yeah the final girl. I mean I I think with this it's like what you're saying like this is the first where something like that um, where where you think of Texas Chainsaw and you think of Leatherface um, how it started that in a lot of ways and it also started the trope horror movie trope which I love is like the final girl like the 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 lone survivor the one that makes it out who definitely is going to need years and years of lifelong therapy afterwards um but they are the one that survives survives this terrible or ordeal um and my one of my favorite scenes in this whole movie is is the last scene where we see um oh god i'm blanking on her name sally sally um where she is completely hysterical covered in blood and just losing her mind laughing and laughing out of horror that she's escaped while she's watching Leatherface just dance with a chainsaw in the distance as she's being taken away in the back of a uh, of a pickup truck yeah I, I love the I love the ending in this I, I think that's something too that mm-hmm. sort of uh shouldn't go unmentioned is that this is it's a great ending because I I don't think number one I don't really feel it's open ended and number two yeah. Uh, yeah. I feel like later on in in horror horror films and the horror genre mm-hmm. if you were if you're setting out to make a horror film like the ending you'd always want to put a hook in there for like a sequel just because you know there was the assumption yeah so there'd usually be some sort of like ridiculous you know Something. epilogue ending um but this one really uh ended with a bang it's you know incredible ending um incredible opening I, it, really this movie it's it really takes the cake for like the title the opening yeah the ending i mean it has these very powerful powerful images it's a powerful film and even um with with like setting the stage for further horror movie tropes it's also like the you know hick family that you don't know anything about there's no backstory to set us up for this and that's something that i really like uh, um about earlier horror movies is we don't have any backstory the same thing with psycho like we have a little bit we know he had some issues with his mom we don't really know what um but that's what makes it even scarier yeah and and i i I love that aspect when it's well done and it's not just like rando person just like killing people when it's something that you're like 
you can see through that 20 minute dinner scene that there is a lot of messed up stuff going on within that family. Like you, you were learning about that family while you're watching it. And it's almost like, I don't need backstory because I'm getting it all right now. Yeah. I think it's good. It's like, I don't need an origin story. Yeah. But, and I also think you bring up, I think you make a good point about just this sort of like hick Mm -hmm. aspect because we both spent a good amount of time living Mm -hmm. in the country and this was before deliverance right this was post deliverance i believe 71 i think deliverance was like 71 but i think this movie it plays on that idea of like you know these rural areas and rural people but it doesn't Mm -hmm. uh get into all the like oh you from the city you know this kind of just like ridiculousness that other movies definitely like played into um, which became like the sort of like dubbed like exploitation totally. kind of thing. But you, I, so uh, th- yeah, there's a certain like authenticity to this. Mm-hmm. You know, I feel like these people live in this rural area, but they don't, yeah, they don't play up like accents or any goofiness. No, uh, the, the actors, I feel like that, that are, that are the villains or whatever you want to call them in this movie. It feels like they have just been plucked from real world, small town, it it feels very legit in in um, what they're trying to portray, for sure. Um, well, overall, uh, this is this is a great film. I, I this is one I enjoy. I watch every summer. If you haven't seen it, or if you haven't seen it, why well, I encourage you in the heat of the summer uh, to give it a look. Um, we should move on to our pick of the week. Yeah. But uh, again, Toby Hooper, rest in peace. Uh, thank you for delivering such a wonderful bizarrely bizarrely kind of beautiful movie yeah yeah and that um inspired countless films after it yeah yeah so uh we're about to go to our pick of the week here but um you know when you do a podcast Uh (laughs) uh-huh sometimes things happen life life happens life happens you know my dog cries Oh. Incessantly, sometimes when we try to do our podcast. That's sweetheart. Right now, I have a bunch of in laws staying with me. Mm-hmm. And that's fine with me. I love my in laws. Um, they're very The nice. only reason I mention this is because they're upstairs right now having a good time. We're down here <laughs> podcasting. And that's okay. But if you hear what sounds like a small party going on during our pick of the weeks, uh, that's them just getting back from dinner. It's completely fine. There's a party upstairs. All right, so it's time to get to the pick of the week. Let's isn't get it? into the pick of the week. Lindsay Reber, what's your pick of the week? So the movie's called My Boyfriend's Back. Um, I'm going a little off the rails here. Um, you know, all this kind of cannibalism talk, and it, I can't help but think of zombies. And I'm pretty fond of that genre. Um, it is directed by um, actor-director Bob Balaban, who you might know from Waiting for Guffman, uh, Best in Show, other Christopher Guest comedies. Um, but, okay, why love this cheesy zombie love story about a high school kid who returns from the dead just so he can take the love of his life to prom? What's the point? Well, for me, it's just because this movie is so simple and so darn sweet um this film doesn't take itself seriously at all it's very tongue-in-cheek it's black comedy um yeah it's a black comedy about forbidden love um 
it is strange um, in that um, no one in this small town is particularly alarmed by someone returning from the dead, let's say, but they're more bothered by him attempting to court a girl who's alive. You know, we don't take kindly to dead kids around here is something that is very commonly said in this movie or something like that. Um, you know, his friends, teachers, parents, um, no one really seems to care that he's back from the dead. Just further adding that this is definitely a comedy and nothing to be taken seriously at all. So there are also um, uh, plenty of not so hidden metaphors buried in this one. If you were to insert like racial or sexuality subtext here, it would certainly not be off base at all. It's not heavily masked in this movie. Um, yes, the, the premise for this, this one is completely off the wall. Yes, it is completely unbelievable. Um, it's a relic from the nineties that goes for like absurdist humor, uh, finds laughs in like the most morbid of moments like body parts decaying, um, you know, off our beloved zombie hero named Johnny Dingle. Like, why did they name him Johnny Dingle? Like that name. Come on, man. Um, <laughs> I can't even, every time they say Johnny Dingle, I'm just like, why is your last name Dingle, dude? Come Dingle, on. Dingle's a funny name. Why are you going to do it? You, uh, out of every name. You know, there there are very funny moments. Like, he's he's coming back from the dead and, and arguing with his love, being like, you know, I ate someone for you. I did this for you. Like, it's ridiculous. But it is very sweet at the same time. All in all, this movie is something that is uh, kind of nostalgic a little bit for me. Um, I, I, I can't really think of another movie like it, nor do I ever think that it should be attempted again or recreated. I, not that I think anyone would ever attempt it, but it definitely shouldn't be. Um, it's not rocket science, and but it doesn't mean that there's not some depth in this one. Um, every time I see our little Johnny Dingle, um, get to take the love of his life to prom right before his body collapses in front of her on the dance floor. I'm totally in tears. Um, I mean, not gushing tears, but I tear up. So uh, it's cheesy. It's so typical romantic comedy. Um, but I guarantee you've never seen anything like it. Totally not ashamed to say that my boyfriend's back tugs at my heart real hard. Um, but I'll also take a, a any type of black humor mixed with a love story anytime. Um, it's also worth noting um, that along with our very accomplished Bob Balaban, who we've mentioned before, um, and the cast isn't really anything to sneeze at either. We've got um, Cloris Leachman, um, Philip Seymour Hoffman, um, Mary Beth Hurt, um, and then some cameo, not cameos, but uh, Matthew Fox of Party of Five, if you remember that show, and also Matthew McConaughey um, in bit roles in this movie too. Wow, I didn't know that they... Those yeah. guys were in this. I know. Just like little things. And like Philip Seymour Hoffman has a fairly, you know, prominent supporting role in it. It's pretty ridiculous. But he's you, YouTubing that after this. Yeah, podcast. you definitely should. He plays a little Hoosier. It's real cute. And even though our main stars, uh, uh Andrew Lowry and Tracy Lind had very limited careers, um, to me, they'll forever be the sweetest couple um, who totally embodies undying love. That's just me. I think this movie's real sweet. It's real stupid. What about what about your pick of the week? I'm so, kind of excited about this. So uh, 
They're really getting excited up there. I know. Like a, I think my boyfriend's back like really yeah. jazzed him up. So, um, my pick of the week, I picked Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part Two, which was awesome. Which this one was written and directed by Toby Hooper. It's strange because it kind of picks up. So it doesn't really pick up where Texas Chainsaw Massacre left off. It's like there's this gap of time that happens between Texas Chainsaw, but immediately. I, I think that there was black humor that was intended in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre and that didn't play to audiences and so Toby, Toby Hooper was like I'm really making it evident in part two and so this came out in 1986 I believe we really get the you know he's showing this sort of idea of like the you know yuppies became a thing in the 80s and this the introduction is like very non-rural it's like these yuppies driving in like a bmw or something and the leather you know it's very very violent like this this movie to me is like overly violent like they tried to go as over the top as they possibly could um to the point i mean it's it's almost disgusting it's almost disgusting i don't know the the thing is it's like it's this movie is worth watching because of the insanity of it it's like one of it's one of those movies you look back and you're just like man it's nuts that this movie got made Mm -hmm. um because it is, it is very much like a retelling of the first film, um, but they add uh, like a, a marshal that's after them. Dennis Hopper okay. plays, uh, the, you know, and also he like uh, is a chainsaw wielding, uh, you know, that goes out and gets some chainsaws. There's just so many crazy things about it, but but we do have the Leatherface character. We do have um, the the cook, and we get a little bit more a backstory on how they're surviving you know that they're making sausages now out of human body parts award-winning chili you know they're award-winning chili but it is a movie it's kind of one of those things that just has to be seen to believed i I will say this with one thing there's um a character in it that has a metal plate in his head and i want I, i will honestly i honestly believe that that Michael Keaton ripped off his character for Beetlejuice. <laughs> I honestly believe oh, that that he that he's channeling uh, that character that that he portrayed in Beetlejuice. Um, and if you watch the scene where they're in the radio station, it's to me it's the I feel like if you just closed your eyes, you would hear Beetlejuice talking. And uh, again, with Toby Hooper, I do think this is. For me, like I was kind of looking through his, I wanted to do another Toby Hooper film for Pick of the Week, and um, a lot of his later stuff. Honestly, I'll be honest. I mean, I'm just, I'm gonna be honest here. I, I'm not. Just I, be honest. I'm not a fan of a lot of the stuff that he did outside outside yeah. of the '90s, uh, '80s, and '90s. Um, and and that's okay, you know. I mean, but because yeah. to me, he made this sort of perfectly awesome, iconic film, and. Uh, Texas Chainsaw Massacre Part 2 is like a nice icing on the cake. And I think it's evident of his signature. You know, he really, again, playing on these characters that are just sort of this crazy family dynamic and and, and how it escalates, you know. And, and the it, it's like if you feel like the last 20 minutes of the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is intense, it's like, the last 30 minutes of Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2 is like, it's almost too much to take. It's just it's so just much. Like, it's yeah. What's happening. Yeah. You know, I think the reason and it's like, y- how big is their underground facility? Yeah. What is that? Who made that? First of it's all, it's insane. Um, 
I think the reason that you, you, you care so much or you're interested in what happens in the, in the sequel, because I think the first movie did such a good job of setting up these characters for you to be genuinely interested in who they were. So I think watching, watching what happens, um, to them just, just comes naturally. You know, again, being honest here, Chainsaw 2 was more of my growing up than the mm. original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. It was one that was on cable and yeah. it was just something that I think was just more accessible to me for some yeah. reason. So that I actually saw part two before I saw the original Texas Chainsaw mm-hmm. Massacre. Um, so those are our picks of the weeks. Uh, those are... Picks, picks of the week? Those are our picks of the week. Or picks of the two weeks. Yeah. Just pick it. Picks of the week. Just pick a movie. Pick a movie. Anyway. Um, well, thank you uh, for giving me another movie to want to check out. Yeah. Thank you for making me, not making me. I wanted to watch it. I remember it, you didn't want to, and I was like, if you don't watch this movie, <laughs> you, you can't show up to the next podcast. I loved it. Yeah. Really. So those are our picks of the week. Uh, my boyfriend's back. In Texas Chainsaw Massacre 2. Um, I haven't seen my boyfriend's back, so I'll be checking that out soon. <laughs> Let me know um, when you do. I'm, I'm just the <laughs> fact that Philip Seymour Hoffman is in it that really mm-hmm. gets me. Uh, I'm a you know I like Philip Seymour Hoffman. Yeah. You know I know he, he probably has a tiny role in it, but he does. I like seeing but... these roles where actors, especially ones that are have actors that move on to these like very yeah. serious you think of them as like the as serious an actor as you can think of like Philip Seymour Hoffman, like and starting this, off in like a very kind of fun, goofy. Yeah. You know, and this movie. is like a high school bully. Yeah. Back off dead boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so, Texas Chainsaw Massacre too. It is such a special ride. Um, that I, it is completely different from the first, uh, but I think very much, uh, worth a viewing. And if anything there, if you like dark humor, this, this one's littered with it. Yeah. Um, so let's go to our Murray moments and you know what? Let's just get right into it. Chicks dig me. Because I rarely wear underwear, and when I do, it's usually something unusual. I think I need a root canal. I'm sure I need a long, slow root canal. You're gonna come and shake my monkey tree again? Oh, what does that old queen know? She didn't even chill. Okay, this is so scrumptious. Is this hand shot? The flowing robes embrace all striking. All right, so 1974 um, was when John Belushi was the producer for the National Lampoon's radio show. This predated the Saturday Night Live um, as we know it today. Um, He recruited Billy for the cast. Uh, The radio show, um, as some of you might know, was a start for so many folks who went on to do SNL later on. Um, It was also right around the time that Billy met soon-to-be legend who left us too soon, comedian Gilda Radner. 
Uh, There are countless stories that could be told about these two, and I'm sure I'll talk about it in future podcasts. Um, From their days on SNL together, the parties, their relationship with each other, so many tales, so many laughs, but also a lot of heavy hearts. Um, I read a little bit of Life from New York, um, an uncensored history of Saturday Night Live recently, and I found this passage from Billy um, himself talking about the last time he saw Gilda Radner before she passed away, and for some reason, it just felt like something important to share this time this time around. Here's Billy in his own words. I can't do an impression, but I'll, I'll try. So Gilda got married. She went away. None of us really saw her anymore. There was one good thing, though, that happened. Lorraine, which was Lorraine Newman of Saturday Night Live, Lorraine had a party one night. It was a great party at her house, and I ended up being the disc jockey. She only had 45s and not that many, and you, so you, I really had to work the music end of it. Um, there was this whole collection of the funniest people I'd ever known at this party. Somehow Sam Kennison sticks out in my mind. The whole Monty Python group was there. So many of us from the show, a lot of other funny people, and Gilda. Gilda showed up, and she'd already had cancer and gone into remission and then had it again, I guess. Anyway, she was really slim. We hadn't seen her in a long time, and then she started doing the whole I've gotta go thing. And then she was just gonna leave, and I was like, you're gonna go? It felt like at that moment, it was the last time like I would see her. She was really going to leave forever. So we started carrying her around in this way that could only be done with her. We carried her up and down the stairs all throughout the house repeatedly for a long time until I was completely exhausted. And then Danny, Danny Aykroyd, did it for a while. Then I did it again. We just kept carrying her, and we did it in teams. We kept carrying her around, like upside down in every which way, over your shoulder, under your arm, carrying her like a piece of luggage. And that went on for an hour, maybe an hour and a half, just carrying around and saying, she's leaving, this could be it. Now come on, this could be the last time you could see her. Gilda's leaving. Remember how she's really sick. Hello. We worked all aspects from it, and... It had just started with, she's leaving. I don't know if you've said goodbye to her. And we said goodbye to the same 10, 20 people, you know. And because these people were really funny, every person we'd drag her up to would do like five minutes with her, with Gilda upside down in some tortured position, which she absolutely loved. She was laughing so hard, we could have lost her right then and there. It was just one of the best parties I'd ever been to in my life. I'll always remember it. It was also the last time I saw her. Now, I know Justin and I spent the majority of this podcast talking about a fictional horror movie inspired by true events, but it is truly the tragedies of real real life that stick with us. And there's so much of me that wishes I could have been a fly on the wall during those pre-SNL days, these extraordinary moments that maybe seemed like nothing at the time, but looking back and remembering the last time you saw Gilda Radner alive, this woman you respected and loved and had a bond with like no other, it's totally gutting, but it's also really beautiful and a pretty fitting memory, actually. So, 1974, you were the beginning of so much for our guy, Billy Murray. And I know Justin and I both greatly appreciate um, Billy Murray 
and uh, Gilda Radner and probably what they created together. Oh, thanks for that. That was very a touching tribute to Gilda Radner as well as Toby Hooper. Oh, I always loved that woman. Yeah. It's my childhood. It's very visceral. Murray moment. I I wasn't expecting to come across like that moment, like necessarily yeah. like him remembering the last time he saw her alive. And uh I don't know. I I'm I grew up loving Gilda Radner. Um so and and those two obviously always had a very stark chemistry on yeah. Saturday Night Live together. Um so yeah, finding that I was like, well, I guess this is it. No, it's an incredible <laughs> story. I mean, it's, I think too, because I think comedians have a really great way of dealing with pain and tragedy mm-hmm. through through humor. You know, I mean, I think a lot of times it goes hand in hand. Yeah. Um, you know, but I I don't know. Like it was that was very visual. Like I could, yeah, it know. was like an actual like thing, yeah. and like it, it, even previously, like with another Murray moment with uh, nothing lasts forever, like talking about like how everyone was so like supremely affected by the passing of John Belushi, and like how that came out in like certain ways. Um, it was just, I mean, just it's just it is just life, and like that's what happens. Um, but in these instances, it just seems so much bigger just because of like the impact of the people that we're talking about. And, um, these people are creating this art and putting it out in the world. And then they're leaving like the trail of heartbreak behind them and like what comes out of that. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of the best art has come out of tragedy or heartache. Totally. I think that's a place you yeah. know, you try to make something beautiful out of something tragic. Yeah, not just TV or film, music, everything. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thanks for sharing that. That was Of I'm, course. I you know I uh, I I, I, didn't I know I was wondering I didn't <laughs> know where where the you know cuz I know we try to connect you, you try to connect it to the movie, but I think in, in, it was is a very fitting way. Yeah. You know. I mean, evidently 1974 it was a uh, formative year for a lot of different things, whether it's the beginning of a relationship or the beginning of something special in someone's career or the beginning of something that would be an incredible uh, niche area of the horror genre. Yeah. And uh, that was a very uh, early Bill Murray moment <laughs> it was, was you know man pre, if you pre, look up some just about anything if you look up some great uh, there are some great early 70s bill murray photos if ever you're curious just uh google that curious google that well thanks again for your murray moments i would like to close out with one thing um and I this got is a some, thing too so you? okay yeah, i got a thing right. well I, you, what's your no what's you your thing first. no no no, no. Oh, what's right. your thing stop pointing at me <laughs> i'm italian what do you want um so it's not so, so much something about the movie um is there is a place that opened uh, a few years ago called the gas station and i believe it's in bastrop texas it's uh fairly close to austin but 
this guy, he was a huge Texas Chainsaw Massacre fan, found the gas station that they used yeah. in the movie, and yeah. he sort of had it moved to this uh, place in Texas, and Whoa. they kind of... Um, built a whole like area around it like they have cabins that you can stay the night in and you can actually buy like a piece of the wood that was part of the gas station they have texas chainsaw massacre memorabilia Uh, i think they've also had like multiple uh like the hitchhiker from texas chainsaw massacre has made multiple appearances especially around october maybe maybe we should we should take a little don't push pause field trip Take take don't push pause the Texas. Yeah, don't push pause but, dog dog family field trip. But but if if that doesn't happen, I encourage anybody to. They have it's called the gas station. I've their website's pretty minimal, but it looks like it's pretty cool. I don't I don't know too much about it. I've, I've kind of I was following them on Instagram for a while, but it seems pretty cool. It seems like they're doing it's they're developing it. Yeah. They're trying to get more. Um, uh, like kind of special guests come and get yeah. autographs and that kind of stuff. I, I I'm into that kind of stuff. I think it's fun. You know, I think you can. It have is fun totally with it, so. fun. I don't and know. the beautiful thing about something like that is because is that you have this one this one thing that you can do and like you can stay there. There are cabins, right? Yeah, it's okay. not just like a twenty minute deal. And they 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 serve yeah. like barbecue. Like it's kind of in the whole. Of course, they, they serve course, barbecue. Yeah. Great, um, and you can make your own tour probably around the whole thing, or like at least talk to people if you're that interested in Texas Chainsaw. Like talking to someone else and being like, "Oh, you should go." 20 miles over here and right. you're gonna find this and like that's gonna be great yeah i think it's just it's something fun i like you know and it's 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 definitely like a labor of love it's like yeah the, this guy like truly like loves this movie and like you know he, he put a lot Dude, of time awesome. and dedication into that's so opening cool. this place so i i want to go at some point um but uh you the listener if you uh you know are in texas or you're close to texas seek or, it know, out check it out at least check out their instagram or their website it's called the yeah. gas station and what was your uh closing um thought on the the original texas chainsaw massacre um what one of my favorite things about this movie is the okay so we know that it, we've got elements of cannibalism we've got just straight up murder um as as we learned in texas chainsaw 2 um, we have award-winning barbecue that's from humans. Um, so what we actually learn from the first one is that there is this underlying like idea of, I, I don't know whether it was really promoted like in the making of it or whether it happened afterwards just as like an incidental thing, but like, um, in the beginning of Texas Chainsaw, it's really set up that humans are kind of like the same as animals being slaughtered in a slaughterhouse. Like we see scenes of slaughterhouses, cattle and slaughterhouses. Um, and then the rest of the movie are kind of humans being treated the same way in, in some way. Um, it's not like I said, like or like we talked about, it's not like the most like visual like bloody or anything like that but they're being treated in the same way as animals so one could probably make the assumption that this movie could be uh maybe promoting 
vegetarianism. And it's also interesting to note that for at least, I think, a year or something, I think it was Toby Hooper that like went vegetarian for quite some time after the after the movie was done. And I, I don't think that it is necessarily a stretch to to assume this because there is a lot of likening animals to people and that they are one and that like look at our treatment of of this and again I don't think that Toby Hooper set out to be like I'm gonna make a movie about vegetarianism I think it was just like something that happened during it but I think that um me being being a vegetarian like I noticed this maybe like three-fourths of the way through the movie that it was a, a, a stark resemblance between animals and people and them being equal and being like, hmm, what are we trying to say actually here? Um, so I think that's something that's important to like think about when you're watching the movie. Yeah, I think, no, I think that's a very valid... Uh it's just it's kind of like a fun thing maybe like not the first time you're watching the movie through but maybe the second time or if you feel like you can't make it through a second time like just keep that in the back of your head just as like a um that there is a slight commentary on like humans and animals kind of being the same and like maybe like our way of like processing meat or or it's kind of it's kind of a lot of things all put together. Yeah, and, and um, Texas is just so known for its like barbecue. Yeah, and like exactly. Where most of the cattle, dude. Comes I was from just talking yeah. about pulled chicken. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. Some Texas pulled chicken. I mean, the last time yeah. I had pulled barbecue chicken, yeah, it was right outside Center Texas, and yeah. it was really good. That's where to get it. Yeah. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. Uh, we hope you have enjoyed it. Um, before we close out, I just wanted to make mention, um, if you're not already, you can follow us on Instagram, Don't Push Pause Podcast. We're on Facebook, Don't Push Pause Podcast. Uh, you can go to don'tpushpausepodcast.com mm-hmm. um, if you want to look for updates. Um, we try to post about uh, future episodes, what's going on, what we're watching, and a bunch of other silly stuff. Yeah, so stick with us and try to make it as fun and entertaining as possible. And uh, we can't thank you enough if you've been uh, with us this long or even if you're just uh, joining us for the first time. Uh, Thanks so much. I'm Justin Johnson. And I'm Lindsay Reber. Thank you. Thanks for listening.